Welcome to the PA is in the show created by PAs for PAs where codependency with your supervising physician is a thing of the past. Optimal team practice is the future and physician associate has taken the place of physician assistant as the professional title of choice. We are redefining what success as a PA looks like and what it feels like here. You'll find the tangible practical things that I use to escape healthcare burnout, the exact mindset shifts, money habits, systems, and processes I used to become a unicorn PA with a job that I love, abundant energy, time to spare, and work optional financial freedom. I'm sharing everything that has helped me to navigate over a decade of PA life with you so that you can live long and prosper. Today on the PA is in, we have a guest, Sarah Mowry. Sarah is going to share with us her journey from clinical medicine into the industry and what she does now that helps her to impact the care of many more patients than she would ever have been able to impact one-on-one at the bedside. We're going to talk about her walk through burnout, how she recovered, what changes she made, and how she adores the challenge and the unique nature of her position in the medical industry now. Without further ado, here she is, Sarah Mowry. Sarah, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thanks. Excited to be here and chat with you. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about you and what it is that you do. Yeah, um, I am Sarah Mowry. I am uh, a PA of 12 years. Um, I'm going to give my holistic intro like I see other guests on your <clears throat> on your show. Awesome, yes. so I live in Houston, Texas. Uh, I work from home and I am a mom of three. My children are 10, 8, and 4. I'm a wife and uh, I work as senior product manager in clinical trial delivery. And um, a little bit about that work is um, it's, <clears throat> it's product development and product ownership of clinical solutions. And so there's, there's three flavors to it or kind of three divisions in the work that I focus on. And that's uh, technology, clinical solutions, and models of trial delivery. So I currently work at a startup within a large enterprise, uh, which is kind of the best of both word, worlds. There's a lot of um, startup ingenuity, problem solving, creativity, doing things that have never been done before. And um, there's also a lot of security working for an enterprise too, and uh, and resources that you can tap into, expertise that you can tap into, uh, which is great. And so in this role, um, I get to be advocates of patients, advocates of clinicians, uh, find technology solutions that allow clinicians to do their job as uh, sub-investigators for the most part, um, even study coordinators and lots of other roles. But I do so with a mindset advocating um, for the patient and clinician and to try to find technologies and software and clinical solutions that don't get in the way of the, the patient and provider interaction. And so that's something that I get to build to and, uh, and train our teams to. So what is your background clinically and how did you end up where you are now? Because that to me, I think there's someone listening who is saying, wow, that sounds cool. I would love to see that changed as a part of my practice, as a part of our system, as a part of healthcare in general. How did you get to where you are and where did you start? Thanks. Uh, it's, it was a very interesting path that I took. 
Uh, I began my first job right out of PA school approximately 12 years ago. I began at a rheumatology clinic and it was a jointly owned practice. So there was a, uh, a physician who owned the rheumatology side of things and he had um, a female co-owner of the, the research practice. And that from the start was just a great dynamic as a first job to have a, a female owner and a male owner and to just get both perspectives and both leadership styles and to learn both at once. As you know, when you first get out there, it's really intimidating, but you're also very much like a sponge and able to soak in a lot at a quick pace. Uh, and so for the most part, my practice was adult rheumatology. Um, and so treating patients, diagnosing first-time visits, um, joint injections, that type of thing. And then probably about 25% of the time I was acting as a sub-investigator. And there was a whole on-site research staff kind of in the other part of our, our building that was able to support us. And my collaborative physician was also my principal investigator. And the co-owner of the research practice would take me to conferences and kind of show me the, uh, the research side of things and the industry side of things. I can't say that I caught the bug at that time, like the industry, clinical research, pharma bug. I was more focused on patient care and just learning medicine, as you can imagine your first role can be really, is really overwhelming and scary at times. Uh, so that probably took most of my attention and focus, though I enjoyed the research part of things. Ultimately, um, I would say just, just like many others, the work-life balance got hard, charting nights and weekends got really hard. And I transitioned uh, to a different role and worked in retail healthcare for a while, seeking work-life balance. And that was great. I, I did that for a while, hovered at 30 hours a week, had my first two children, and it was a, it was the perfect role at the time for me. <clears throat> and then um, I just kind of kept seeking once I felt like I wasn't challenged anymore from kind of the at home being challenged as a new mother, I started seeking new opportunities at work. So uh, when they said, hey, we're going to roll out a new EHR, who wants to be trained as a super user? I thought that sounds fun. Or uh, who wants to kind of go around and make sure we're all ready for joint commission? I thought that sounds fun. And so I raised my hand for many different kind of fun stretch opportunities and transitioned to eventually a formal education role where I had a territory um, of three different states and the ability to uh, identify new preceptors, train new preceptors, uh, train the staff on new, <clears throat> new services that were getting rolled out. And my first flavor of product development was an opportunity to develop a national grand rounds program for our organization where we kind of put together, you know, what's a good case study for this. Um, we brought together physicians, pharmacists, nurse practitioners, PAs, and, uh, and had great clinical discussion and stood that up. And that, that creating something new that could really make an impact to yeah. patients and our clinicians was the first time I thought, I I never thought I was a creative person, but it turns out I am. And it brings me a lot of satisfaction. Um, and it was also the first time that I thought I can have an impact to patients at scale. And that mm. was really exciting for me. And I thought, oh, I, I love patients. I still want to progress healthcare. I still want to be impactful to the patient. But now um, kind of the satisfaction or the, the return of reward is a little bit further out. And for every kind of step I take, that reward is a little bit more of a long game, but mm. I feel like my impact continues to grow. Um, so fast forward then, I took a role 
within the same organization on a team that was responsible for creating and maintaining uh, national practice guidelines using evidence-based research. And so again, as I was listening in and reading what's new from evidence, I started to kind of cue in on some of the things that I had forgotten about from research, patient reported outcomes and such. And it continued to be um, interesting to me. And then I began uh, designing our EHR system to support kind of the, our providers using the practice of those guidelines, right? So knowing that um, training isn't, training is great, but no one should have to think about kind of um, the, the technologies they're using, right? They shouldn't have to train to use a system. The system should just flow and they should be able to focus on the, the patient in front of them and, um, and not have to think too much about the buttons they're clicking. And so that was, that was really fun for me and um, probably was when I got more into technology. <clears throat> I took a small step in a different role and uh, began doing more clinical product development in that role as kind of a service line leader. So it would be something like, hey, we want to decentralize the way that um, this certain disease is diagnosed and tested and treated. And so we want to find, you know, we want to create a solution that we can do it all virtually. And this is before the pandemic. So virtual wasn't really a thing as much back then. Um, or we want to do it across thousands of locations. And so that kind of took me into, oh, how do we, how do we pick a clinical partner and contract with them and qualify with them and um, integrate with them? So it brought me more into business and more into technology with integrating different systems, but ultimately still staying true to me, like building it with the patient at the center and the, the end user, the clinician right there, and then handing off to training and just making decisions that are um, common sense and, and clinical. When the pandemic hit, my organization uh, started up a clinical trials business unit, and I was tapped as the person who was doing clinical product development for decentralized medicine, um, and I had a background in research. So they said, oh, come on over. <laughs> and that was interesting because as a startup, there were days where you thought, what am I even doing? I'm looking at centrifuges, or I'm like picking locks for things. And I would say it, it was kind of... Um, a weird scenario to think about, um, I don't know, so operational or so far removed from what I wanted to be doing. But once we stabilized kind of some of the, the basics, now I'm getting able to apply a lot of those same principles, technology, clinical product development, innovating new ways of doing things, um, but from a research perspective. And uh, now, instead of our clinicians practicing medicine, it's our clinicians um, sub-eyes practicing um, or or performing research activities. And so, yeah, it's a little bit. So for those of us who are maybe a little rusty or skipped that day in research class in PA school, can you explain what the difference between a sub investigator and a principal investigator is? I would love to. And um, <clears throat> that being said, I must say that even though my model or the model that I work most intimately with doesn't have um, principal investigators as mm -hmm. uh, physician assistants or physician associates, PAs and nurse practitioners, there are some out there. And so I must say uh, PAs are possible and are, are well suited also to be um, principal investigators, even for investigator initiated trials. But Pretty much um, trials can be initiated by a biopharma sponsor, um, by, a, by a device company, or even by an investigator themselves to try to further the body of research, right? The body of knowledge <clears throat> to create evidence-based 
recommendations and potentially new investigational drugs and devices. The principal investigator is the person who is first and foremost responsible for that information. Some trials are really just data analytics, and so potentially like a PhD could be a principal investigator. But for the most part, in a clinical trial, like a new um, a new mRNA vaccine that's that's getting investigated, that principal investigator is most typically uh, a physician. And so sub-investigators are uh, investigators that work alongside a principal investigator or work with and can be delegated certain things like um, physical exam assessments, right? Um, taking medication histories, taking, um, identifying if a person is qualified to participate in a trial based on protocol inclusion and exclusion criteria, identifying potential adverse events and reporting them and so on. And so um, as you can, as I kind of explain this, right, it, it's kind of a no brainer, right? The, the sub investigator to principal investigator model is very similar to the way that PAs and physicians practice and team practice. And so it's a beautiful fit. And so you are now, what is your role relative to those investigators now that things are like a little bit up and running and you're kind of over that hump of the startup part? That's a great question. Some days it doesn't feel like we're over the hump of the startup. (laughs) Um, There are many new technologies that we're still identifying and bringing forward so that we can do more and more types of trials. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I'm thinking about a, like a, a product release cycle, some of the most foundational things, like our um, our first kind of products, our first ways of doing things have gone out into the wild. People are using them. And so right now, that, that, that first cluster of capabilities is getting refined. So getting feedback from them, listening to our sub-investigators and investigators, hearing what's working well. Um, one way that we do that is by testing. And so we invite clinicians to participate in testing of the technologies and we get feedback and optimize uh, what we do based on that feedback. I'd also like to share that if somebody that um, is interested in getting involved a little bit more with technology or product development or leadership, testing is a really great way to do that. Mm. So the odds are if you're touching an EHR, if you're touching a computer system, they're probably updating with releases and there's probably a team at your institution who tests it and they want the end users to test it. And that's, um, that's how I, one of the ways that I got into technologies in the first place is through testing. And so I would encourage folks who might be interested in this path to, to volunteer for testing opportunities. I think that is really great to hear as someone who is the end user, as someone who's practicing clinically, if they're listening to this, they're going to say like, Good. I'm glad that Sarah exists, right? Because they are using a system that sometimes is a barrier to them getting their patients what they need, sometimes slows them down, or as you said, makes them think more about the technology and the number of clicks and the order set and what they're entering as opposed to what that patient needs. And as providers, I think we all understand like charting is necessary. Do we love it? No. Like, do we need to do it? Yes. And so anything that makes charting less painful, less cumbersome, less of a barrier between me and getting my patients what they need is always a win. So that's going to improve, you know, that patient's experience. It's going to improve the provider's experience. So 
you're saying if someone is like, yeah, I like technology or I often have ideas like why doesn't Epic do this or why doesn't my EHR do that? They could reach out to whoever is like sending them emails about new rollouts or updates or when there's going to be downtime for Epic at their organization and say, hey, I would like I'm volunteering next time you need to test something, pick me. Yes, exactly. They're often called super users as well, um, or UATers, user acceptance testing. Um, mm -hmm. That That's a great way. Also, many institutions have kind of feedback committees, right? And as you can imagine, technology is usually a large section of each feedback. So our field feedback, these are our pain points of technology. Mm -hmm. um, in our um, in our institution, we called it shared leadership council. But if your institution has a feedback committee, uh, that committee is probably getting FaceTime with the technology teams very regularly. And so that would be a good way to, to kind of begin to get more comfortable with the whole scene and to figure out if it's really your thing. Yeah. Who's who and what's going on and if you really do enjoy it. So speaking of enjoying it, tell me about your work-life balance and how things have changed. I know you said you work from home. You have a handful of young kids. Do you have better boundaries? Is your life a better work-life balance than it was before? I feel like working from home is great, but it's also slippery because you can work from anywhere. And so you can work at 9 p.m. or 2 a.m. You know, it's uh, can kind of suck you in in that way. Yeah, to me, <clears throat> work-life balance is a little bit like enlightenment. Like, am I ever going to really reach it? Sure. I don't know, but I'm never going to stop seeking to make it better. And I always have to balance it with this, the drive I kind of alluded to earlier. I want to continuously make a bigger and bigger impact to patient care on a larger and larger scale. But I also want to be a great mom and a great wife. <laughs> and um, so there's a couple different ways I'd measure it. Um, if I measure it in a week, I always sign off on the weekends. I am not a weekend worker. That's when, and I know that different people have shift work and so forth, but I do have boundaries. Weekends are one of them. Um, you know, for a long time, many years, I would say I kept trying to steal from the bucket of myself and work when I should be sleeping to not take from my family. And I learned over and over again that 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 doesn't work out. I <laughs> just get uh, a shorter rope and less patience with my family. And so um, taking care of myself has to be first and foremost so that I can take care of my family and be a great leader at work and a thoughtful leader at work. Um, and so I, I would say I'm getting better every day. I'm on the path to enlightenment, but, um, but there's still, there's still room for me to improve compared to my days of charting and in the morning when I ate breakfast and charting at night before I went to bed and charting on Sundays while football was on much better than that. Um, yeah. So yeah. We interrupt this broadcast with a very important announcement. You are not making enough money. Your practice and your physician do not understand the value you are adding to their patients and therefore you aren't earning what you're worth. If in the past your requests for a raise have been met with one single word, no. If you're working more hours than ever and seeing more patients, but you're not making any more money and you're feeling pissed about it. If you feel like you've hit the ceiling of your income band, this guide is for you. I've compiled the five most costly and most common mistakes that PAs make when asking for a raise, and I've told you how to avoid them and what to do instead. 
Download your free guide at tracybingaman.com slash mistakes. That's great. I think I don't want to gloss over. You've said this a couple of times. And to me, this is a very important concept to really uh, sort of remind listeners of. So you have stepped further and further away from a patient's physical bedside as you've sort of changed roles and gone deeper into the industry. And in doing so, one would think, oh, she's not impacting patients, right? Stepping away from the bedside would decrease your impact. But what you're actually doing is you're amplifying that impact. And instead of, you know, so many patients to shift or one patient at a time, what you're doing has the ability to affect tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients because you're implementing technology and systems. You're helping that end user provider. And in that way, you're helping the patient. And, but you don't see Mr. Smith right? Physically, you're not seeing Mr. Smith in urgent care or in rheumatology, wherever. So do you miss that sort of immediate feedback and that relationship that you had with your patients when you were practicing clinically? I miss it a little bit. There's give and takes. Currently, in my current life situation, I find that my work more rewarding than it was with direct patient care. That being said, if I get to take a splinter out of a family member or like do a cerumen removal of a family member, I, I just get so thrilled by it. I love it. Um, And I'm always looking for opportunities to, to, I get to use my clinical brain still and think clinically, whether we're looking at new types of protocols or new therapeutic areas that we can create solutions for, such as getting deeper into gastroenterology studies and so forth. Um, so clinically my brain is, is still on tight, but the direct patient interaction, I miss it. I think, um, when my children are a little bit older, I'd love to fulfill that with more mission trips. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm just waiting for them to be big enough to take along with me. Sure. I think that's a great thing to have sort of on the horizon and to say, Hey, not during this season, because we don't logistically have the capacity for it, or it's just not for now. But eventually that is something that I too have thought like when they're big enough that we can sort of safely feel comfortable traveling and they could be like productive and helpful on those trips. What a wonderful experience to give them. All right. I want to switch gears here and talk a little bit about, I think, something that probably played into this transition of yours from clinical to industry. Uh, When we were prepping for this episode, you said, I really want to talk about confidence, risk-taking, and a learner's mindset. So when you were speaking earlier about when you're first out and you're a sponge and you just, as a student, as a new grad, you're like, I want to learn all the things, right? You're going home, you're researching, you still feel like you're in this pursuit of knowledge. And I think the longer that we practice clinically, that exuberance for learning might taper off a little bit. So what can we do to kind of get back to that learner's mindset and to embrace that learning and risk-taking in our careers? Yeah, I think for me, it took me learning things outside of medicine, to be honest. Um, But so if if you're practicing medicine, then maybe applying it to how do I learn more about behavioral interviewing, for instance, Mm -hmm. so that I can learn a new skill in my tool belt to better communicate with my patients and uh, kind of make the changes that I'm looking to make. Um, Or how do I 
learn about technology so that I can apply it to my mundane charting so I can use less of it, right? Do less of it sure. uh, and set up my templates and my tools in a way that makes my life easier. Um, there's certainly lots of things in business that can be used as well. For me, a learner's mindset is um, something that PAs have so well. Um, PAs are lifelong learners and do so by apply, you know, identifying new, um, new recommendations in practice and applying them. And what I want to share is that learner's mindset is I know that there's a lot of PA chatter right now of saying like, how can I, how can I develop into something that's like a slightly different flavor of direct patient care? Mm. Or like, if I want to do direct patient care and maybe something else, how can I get into that? And, um, and the learner's mindset that PAs already have just complement it so well. You can learn anything. And I want everyone to know that like we're really smart individuals and we're stem cells and we've been through a lot to get here. And so if you can learn PA school, you can learn project management, you can learn different communication skills, you can learn technologies and business. And you don't necessarily have to have degrees to be able to do so, additional degrees or additional certifications behind your name to be able to start doing them and jump in and learn by doing. And so I was actually thinking that when you were talking about your career trajectory, I thought at no point did she say, and then I went back to school to formally learn how to do the job that I do now. So have you done any additional training or schooling or certification? Um, nothing beyond a day class here, like, um, to be in research, right. Everybody has to take good clinical practice and so forth. Let's say it's a 14 hour course. Um, so nothing beyond that type of thing. Uh, one of the leaders that I had who was really influential in me getting into, uh, product development sent us to a two day project management class where we were alongside it folks, clinical folks. And she's like, you are clinicians and I'm going to teach you how to learn clinical product development but you're going to learn product development and project management alongside all different industries, finance mm -hmm. industry and so forth. So that was really fun, but it was a two day class. It wasn't, um, it wasn't an MBA. Sure. I've looked many times I've considered given it a lot of thought. And I think, no, that's, um, I think it's unfortunately a challenge that a lot of women leaders face. I think as women, this kind of goes to risk taking. Um, we're maybe less comfortable taking healthy risks than men are and feel like we need to have a certain level of qualification to be able to do so. So I'm constantly trying to be like scan my consciousness of when that type of thinking pops up and say, no, I know common sense. This solution probably just needs a good dose of common sense for me to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And then I can talk to an expert. I can look it up. I can watch YouTube videos. I can take a small course if needed, but um, I'm increasingly feeling like uh, there's many things that we can all do without additional degrees. Yeah. And that inclination of yours is absolutely supported by evidence. Like evidence tells us that men will apply for a new job if they have somewhere between 40 to 60% of the qualifications that that job is asking for. And women, even when they have 100% of the qualifications, will still hesitate where men would have applied like years ago because 
for some reason, they are more confident and they feel like they can figure it out, right? So as Marie Forleo says, everything is figure outable. And it really sounds like you did CME that wasn't CME, right? So you just did continuing education. It wasn't specifically clinical, but you continued to continue your education in a way that was going to serve the roles that you're going to be asked to do in your new position. But it wasn't, again, an MBA, some formal degree. And I do think a lot of us are looking around and saying, hey, people in leadership, people in business, people in this thing that I might want to be, a lot of them have this degree, so I must not be able to do that thing. So what do you have to say to that person who is like, well, that's great, Sarah, but I don't have a research background. I've never done project management. I don't have those tools already. I would say it's all about the right mindset. So similarly, right, when you were in PA school or when you were a new grad and you showed up to a situation willing to help and willing to learn and with curiosity, you got so much more out of it than the super smart Harvard grad who didn't have that attitude. This, the same thinking applies to everything else, I would say, in leadership and business and technology and clinical research. Uh, if you show up with a great attitude and a willingness to help and say, oh, this needs to be done man, I don't know how to do it, but I might have some bandwidth. I'm willing to try if I can um, check in with you and get direction. And we're challenged to do this clinically, right? If you have a collaborative physician who says, don't just come to me with an open-ended question, right? Come to me with a, here's the situation. Um, this is my assessment of what's happening. This is a little bit of background. I'm recommending this, but I want to make sure that I'm on the right track. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. the same thing with, with any other, I would say, endeavor that you take. If you can take the initiative, try it, say like, I need to educate myself a little bit, your learning is going to um, go at a much faster pace than taking a pause from whatever you're doing, going and learning it didactically, and then trying to practice it. Yeah. And I find in my experience... I certainly can remember like bits and pieces of actual lectures in PA school, like sitting in a lecture hall, looking at a slide, learning about hepatitis. But I remember more so my specific patient with ascites who didn't heal from a hernia repair because they were acidic, because they had all of this fluids, they had this intra-abdominal pressure. Like that to me is so much more profound and clear in my mind, even though it happened 10 plus years ago, because I experienced it as opposed to was told about it in theory. I think that that's a really great way to learn. Agreed. So what other sort of myths or things have surprised you about working in industry? Like, I feel like I don't know. I think people who work in industry get paid like way more than clinical PAs. They work from home wherever they want. They make their own hours. Like what's true? What's not true about your experience as far as like what you're actually doing and what you sort of thought it might be like, and then did it turn out to be the same or different? <clears throat> That's a great question. I can say on the site side of things, um, it's, it's not as bougie as you might imagine. <laughs> That's good. I want people to know that. <laughs> no, yes. Um, so when you, and this is, this is one of the reasons why I'm currently at a site side of, of the industry, right? So there's pharma, 
there's, let's say, contract research organizations or CROs, there's the tech companies, and then there's um, sites or kind of um, AMCs or another version of sites, academic medical centers. So I sit on the site side, which is my um, my team is the team that is interacting with patients and participants. And um, so, no, those those organizations run lean. <laughs> so it's good. It's still a lucrative um, industry, um, potentially more so, probably more so than clinical care, although, right, totally depends on what specialty you're in. Um, but not not just uh, rolling in dough over on the site, <laughs> I should say. In terms of myths, I would say there's this there's a there's a myth when I first started getting into um, research again, because I had been out of it. And um, when I was practicing and um, operating as a sub investigator, I had a really amazing team. And so we had study coordinators or CRCs, clinical research coordinators, who it was very white glove. They would come in, they'd say, OK, this is Mr. Jones. He's on V3 of this um new uh, rheumatology drug. And these are the activities we're going to do in V3. So do like a joint count and document it here on this paper. Super easy, right? <laughs> Whereas... Like I can oh, paint by number. I can do that, right? Yep. I could follow the instructions. Oh, yeah. yeah. And honestly, like it's not an intimidating role as a sub-investigator. Mm-hmm. So I think PAs who were looking at jobs, particularly like oncology, gastroenterology, derm, obviously onco- um, obviously oncology, rheumatology, those um, those therapeutic areas have a lot of maybe hybrid roles where you can mm-hmm. see some research as part of it. I would say don't be intimidated. Protocols are very paint by number mm-hmm. and um, and not so not so scary. <clears throat> but the the myth that um, I kind of, when I re-entered industry, that I kept hitting again and again by folks who had many years in the clinical research industry is that, oh, this is so complex and sophisticated. And your oh. medical record care data is no level to what research data is. Mm-hmm. And then when we first started sitting down and interviewing companies for um, what eSource could look like, kind of kind of mm, the... Um, Research's version of an EHR. Okay. Um, we thought this is how you guys document medications. <laughs> this is the best. This is Survey Monkey, essentially. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's a little bit of snobbery out in clinical research mm, that I think okay. is very unfounded. It's not that complicated, and the regulations are um, are doable and learnable, and the quality is constantly finding ways to make quality documentation better and has mm-hmm. opportunities to do so. Um, so I would say the snobbery is unfounded. Don't buy into it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there's like, in my mind, I don't remember ever in my career, like sitting down to read an article that was a summary of research or like a research paper and thinking, this is so incredibly interesting and stimulating to me. I must go into research. Like I must like do my own study. So I feel like as someone who's never been like in research or an industry, I'm like, I'm a clinician. Like that's how I identify. That's how I've identified my entire career. So something would have to change in my brain for me to say like, I 
I want to be a researcher. I want to conduct research. And I think I think of a researcher as someone who's like very different than me. And I don't know that that's really founded. I think like I could do it, right? I just never have. You could do it. And I think <laughs> maybe the best roles for people who are interested but not so sure about it are, again, the ones that are hybrids. Like, okay, I'm going to practice uh, gastroenterology outpatient mm -hmm. for 90% of the time and 10% will be kind of with a little bit of optionality uh, to be a sub-investigator. <clears throat> um, I hadn't thought that way about research before. There's one podcast that I started listening to. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm you can probably edit it out. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say other podcasts, but yeah. when I was in practice, um, American Family Physician, I think it is, is a podcast put on, I think co-put on by Banner Health. And it's just so common sense, practical, the way that they would speak, speak about patient reported outcomes and new, new changes in practice. And the research that was done to me was the one thing that made me really excited about uh, new research. And and those weren't even really so much big drugs. Some of that was just changes in practice type of reason. Mm -hmm. And I do think as clinicians, like if you're listening and you're someone who's not interested in going into research, just having a general idea of how it works and how we get to that article that ends up in JAPA or the article that comes across your desk because your collaborating physician said, hey, I read this and I'm thinking about changing the way that we treat postoperative pain. Having a great understanding of the role that you could have played in that research or the role that other PAs played is a cool thing to sort of understand globally what happens before that research gets to the magazine that gets to your office that you're reading. And I think it's about to get really important because the pace at which new product, new investigational products, new drugs, new vaccines are churning out is about to get turned up significantly. Mm. Um, I think that the pandemic taught us how to run research more effectively and more mm. efficiently. And this whole movement that I'm a part of, which is how do we make research more accessible? Mm. The whole community, the industry is saying, look, there's there's a too small a percentage of people out there in the country and the world who participate in research. Research should be something that is like donating blood, right? Participating sure. in research. It's the right thing to do. I'm currently in two studies, and that was one way that I felt like I could get a flavor of of participation. And some studies are just like, I agree to share my data or my EHR mm -hmm. data. But you still get to go through a consent process. Some studies might be like, okay, I'm going to share my specimens too so that you can run genetic testing um, mm -hmm. on, on population health, essentially. Uh, obviously, it depends on everyone's comfort, but, but that's one way that you can get more familiar with it. Ultimately, as clinicians who are going to be prescribing medications that may be new to market because it's in the best interest of the patient, um, I would say there... The trust of the industry is definitely something that patients are more aware of now. Wait, how do you know this drug is effective? What did you guys do? This came out so fast. It doesn't seem like it could have come out that fast hmm. when in, and be well studied. When in actuality, the protocol designs that are coming out today are so much more complex and so much more powered by numbers and by good data practices than they were 20 years ago. 50 years ago when drugs came out more slowly. And so being able to be educated enough, I think, on the industry to have good conversations with your patients would be beneficial, in my opinion. Mm. 
And I do feel that over time, patients are becoming more proactive, more of an advocate in their own health. They will have come in having read an article or someone told them about a drug. And I think it used to be someone told them about a drug and they came to ask you about it. Now someone told them about a drug, they Googled it, they printed out the article, they're informed about this. And sometimes you're like, I might not have even heard of this, right? Like I might, they might have heard of something that sort of hasn't reached me or hasn't come across my desk as a clinician. So do you have any tips for the clinician who's listening, who's thinking, yeah, I really need to be better about acquiring good, solid research that's applicable to my field so I can know about the latest developments, the latest medications, the latest protocols for my patients while still living my life and seeing my patients and doing all of my charting. Uh, That's a good question. First and foremost, I think having a... I've been in that scenario before where somebody came to me and they were on... um, I think HIV prophylaxis. And it was before Mm. I heard about HIV prophylaxis and my mind was blown. I thought, oh my gosh, how did I not know about this? I can't believe, I can't believe this, this slipped by me. And so I think maybe knowing that that's going to happen and maybe Mm -hmm. having a a confident, like kind of like when you have to look something up in front of a patient or take a minute to go look something up, having that scripting down pat so that you're actually saying it in a way that gives them confidence instead of doubt you know, mm-hmm. um, or, or collaborating with your collaborative physician or a colleague, having that script down pat so that it, instead of saying like, does this person know what they're doing? They think, oh, I'm getting like really next level care. There's yeah. a physician involved in my care right now at the moment, or we're inserting like top of the line evidence-based practices in real time as part of this decision-making. If you can hype it up a little bit and have that mm-hmm. down pat, that would be beneficial because there's going to come a day where there's a drug and you don't know it. <laughs> and it's impossible to know everything everyone's going to ever ask. Like, mm-hmm. And then I think it goes back to how do you learn best? For me, I'm an auditory learner. So keeping up to date with podcasts and finding the right podcast uh, to, to keep me up to date, like the one I mentioned was really helpful. Or finding maybe the the type of journal that you find interesting and setting aside time to read it. For me, it's the most practical common sense ones, less of the the very um, esoteric academic ones. Yeah, I recently discovered um, Freakonomics MD, where they review like very, from like an economist standpoint, they review not necessarily like re- latest like clinical research studies, but a lot about, you know, someone studied something and it would affect your patients in this way. Like, are you having this conversation with them? Um, which I find to be both helpful to know the data, but also the thing that I find when I'm having that input into my life, it's thought provoking. It gets me to consider other aspects of my practice. Like, Oh, I don't treat that kind of patient for that specific diagnosis, but Am I really doing a thorough informed consent for this other thing that I'm doing? I feel like the introduction of new ideas and new information for me is sort of necessary to make it so that my brain doesn't get stagnant and isn't just doing the same thing on repeat that I've always done. Exactly. 
Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to share this conversation with our listeners. If people are wondering, how can I contact Sarah? Where can I connect with her? Where can they find you online? Are you on LinkedIn? Where are you hanging out? I hang out in LinkedIn. Okay, good. Awesome. Well, I will link your LinkedIn in the comments. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I really appreciate you giving us a little peek into the industry so we can see more about what you're doing. And I love to feature sort of non-traditional roles and highlight what PAs are doing outside of bedside clinical medicine. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to be here. I love this job. I love being able to talk to PAs who are doing incredible things, who are blazing the trail, who are trying new things and showing us that you can have a fulfilling, rewarding, challenging role as a PA and still be on the quest for work-life balance and enjoy what you do. Thank you, as always, for listening to The PA Is In. If this episode helped you at all, if the stories we shared and the advice we gave resonated with you, served you, and helped you to feel less alone in this crazy world of healthcare, I am so glad it's meeting you where you're at. The very best thank you that you can give us is to give us a five-star review on Apple, leave a review that's written of what you loved about the show, tag us on social media at Mrs. Tracy Bingaman, Connect with me on LinkedIn, tell your colleagues and your friends about the show and how it positively impacted your life. Thank you again for tuning in to the show by PAs for PAs, where we help you to design your life so that you can live long and prosper. It's your turn to get inspired, take effective action, and become one of those unicorn PAs who loves their job, has abundant energy, time to spare, and financial freedom. That's all for now. This PA is out.